<laughs> as we uh, um, delve into this wonderful book over these 10 weeks, considering God's providence, God's ruling, uh, even when we cannot see him, even when his hand is hidden, we know that God reigns and that he is sovereign, and I trust uh, that we will be encouraged by these truths this morning. While you're finding your way to the book of Esther, I do uh, want to let you know that this Thursday, May 7th, is the National Day of Prayer, and uh, I'm delighted to be able to announce that Hamilton Baptist Church, along with four other of our local churches, including our, our dear friends at uh, Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, are going to put together a live stream service this Thursday night to lead us in prayer as our nation comes uh, to, before our God in prayer. And I trust that uh, you would agree with me that uh, we need our God's help during this time. And so you'll be receiving more information about that this week, at this Thursday night, a live stream service as we uh, go to our Lord in prayer. Well, hopefully you found your way here to Ezra chapter 2, this wonderful story, as we now hear the word of God. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when the many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. And put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her to not make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in the front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in the charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. 
When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had the charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, and the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Our Father, we're thankful for your word that we can now consider, and I trust it is powerful in its testimony to Jesus and the grace and love in which we have received from him. We've already been reminded from that wonderful passage in Ephesians that we as your people are indeed the bride of Christ. And therefore, even as we see this passage I typify a marriage that I think none of us would um, delight in or, or seek after. We are reminded of the great marriage that we have with our Lord by his grace. And so help us, even as we uh, survey uh, this, these happenings so long ago, that we would be indeed mindful of who Jesus is and all he means to us even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Last Battle, the Aslan, the great, uh, the great lion, the, the figure of Jesus Christ in, in these stories, provides a feast for suspicious dwarfs. And they're suspicious because they did not believe that Aslan was good, so they mistrusted anything that he did. Lewis writes, Aslan raised his head and shook his mane, and instantly a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and pigeons and trifles and ices, and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things that you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he got a bit of an old turnip, and a third said he found a raw cabbage leaf, and they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. I think what Lewis is is trying to portray for us is that uh, picturing that Christ is abounding in his grace in that he invites sinners to come and to feast with him and to celebrate that grace with him. But it's only those who actually trust Jesus who will enjoy that feast. Many, of course, refuse to even come, don't they? They would rather chase after the stable food that this world offers, counterfeits that do not provide what they promise. In our study of Esther, we've already seen that this world is providing counterfeits. I think this this book is not just a testimony to God's hidden providence. It is a a testimony to what this world is truly like. And this world is constantly offering us its trinkets and its glittering prizes, which do not give what they uh, offer to us. We see this once again in Esther chapter 2, in this marriage between Esther and Mordecai, or Esther and uh, uh, King Xerxes, I should say. 
I, I uh, came across an article in a magazine that was actually written some time ago about a woman who was having trouble finding uh, a husband, finding her true love, and she actually ran an ad. Do you remember that? Uh, we used to do that. They ran an ad, and she said simply in her ad, husband wanted. Well, interestingly enough, the next day she received dozens of phone calls, all from women who said, you want a husband, you could have mine. You know, marriage is hard work, isn't it? Or so I've been told, at least. And uh, this is, will be the case, especially here with Esther and King Xerxes. I can imagine Esther being one of those on the phone, saying, you want my husband, you can have him. He's all yours. You know, and I mention this because we've heard, I, I'm sure Esther portrayed to us as somewhat of a, a, a fairy tale, the, the beautiful orphan living in a harsh world, falling in love with the lonely king, after, only after winning the, the empire-wide beauty pageant. And then, of course, they together defeat this evil man who is bent on destruction. Yet, I think if we read the book carefully, which I hope and trust we will, we will find that, of course, Esther is indeed a love story. But it is not the love story between a prince and his princess, but between God and sinners. And this, this book is full of sinners. That should not surprise us. In fact, chapter 2, we will find a number of sinners. And yes, I'm afraid to say even Esther is among them. Mordecai, too. And what we learn in, in recognizing that is that despite sin and despite the suffering that it brings, and there is great suffering here, God is working to give grace to the undeserving. This is not a, a book of moral exemplars. We'll find women are being abused and men are cowards and fear seems to rule more than faith. It is a dark world that we see here in Esther chapter 2. It's a dark world even in the day in which we live. And I'm afraid we, we would have to admit that we are some, in some way contributing to that darkness. And yet God does not discard us. Indeed, he provides for us. He delivers us. He loves us. And he rules us. Even when we can't see it, as we've mentioned, this is called the doctrine of providence, God's hidden rule at times when we, we can see no, God not doing anything. God continues to rule. We saw this last time, didn't we? When Queen Vashti was banished because of this foolish decision by a drunk king, and yet the Lord was ruling over it. He's ruling again and again and again. We see this throughout Scripture, and often in very powerful men we see God doing this. He ruled in Pharaoh and King Saul and King Ahab and Nebuchadnezzar and Pilate and, and here in Xerxes' life as well. In fact, you might remember in our study of Genesis recently, recently we've seen uh, that Abraham gave his wife away to this man named Abimelech. And God appears in the middle of the night to Abimelech and says, I'm going to kill you, for you have taken another man's wife. And remember Abimelech's defense. He says to God, I haven't touched her. At which God responds, of course you haven't, because I kept you from touching her. What we see is that over and over again, God is ruling. We see this, of course, in this book, even though God is not mentioned at all. As we've noted already, it is one of the two books in the Bible in which God is not mentioned. And how did that come about, you might ask? Did, did, did the author get to the end of the book and think, oh, I knew I forgot something. God, yes, I, I should have put him in the book somewhere. No, of course not. That's the very point of the book, that though God is unseen, he continues to rule. What is it that we sometimes see? He's got the whole world in his hands, doesn't he? 
He's got the itty-bitty babies in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands, even if it's full of sinners like Xerxes. And so the first individual, first of five people we'll consider this morning is Xerxes, and we consider his fleshly cravings. Note verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Of course, in this translation, his name is Ahasuerus. It's his Persian name, his Greek name, which is in some of your translations, is King Xerxes. And now it has been four years have passed since that party, that 180-day party. We know from the Greek historian Herodotus, during that time, during those four years, between the, uh, the, his third year of reign and now we're in the seventh year of his reign, he took the world's largest army and invaded Greece and was sadly defeated. His army was defeated, his entire navy was destroyed, and now we find him back home, and uh, the king is somewhat dispirited, isn't he, as he begins to reflect and, and think about the banishment of his queen Vashti. Of course, it seemed like a good idea at the time, didn't it? I mean, the spirits were high, and, uh, and she had humiliated him, and so he decided, hey, we need to get rid of this woman, and everybody thought that was a, a grand idea, didn't they? And yet, now that he he's beginning to think of it, he, he begins to think how, how different things might have been if I hadn't made that foolish and rash decision. I don't know if you've ever made a decision in the midst of anger that you later regret, a decision when you're frustrated that you wish you could take back. You look back on that and say, I wish I never would have made that decision. Even people like Queen Xerxes, King Xerxes here, they end relationships. I wonder how many people uh, out of anger, end a relationship, even end up getting divorced, and only years later think, what a foolish decision that was that I made in that rash time. Well, that's where we find this great king. He's not in a good mood at all, it seems. His war chest is depleted. His credibility is cheapened. His title that he seems to cherish, the king of the world, has now challenged, and on top of it all, his wife is gone. And so his counselors come, and they seek to cheer him up. As you see in verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. So they, these guys get together and say, We have a great idea, king. Let's have an empire-wide contest to find a new queen. Let's have a beauty contest, if you will. And I don't know if you're getting the impression already in the book of Esther that King Xerxes needs some new advisors. Um, in fact, you notice that these men are referred to, interestingly enough, there in verse 2, as young men. Young men. The king's young men, we're told. Now, if, uh, I would just tell you, if life is hard and you're feeling vulnerable, I hope I don't offend too many with this statement, maybe you shouldn't seek the counsel of young men. It's almost as if the king walks into a fraternity and says, hey guys, my life stinks, what should I do? And they all say, we got a good idea, let's go get a bunch of women. And, uh, and so off they go, right? I, I would say who you seek counsel from is extremely important. Who you let influence your life is key to the direction of your life. Uh, I, I, I'm incredibly grateful and thankful for uh, the lay elders that we have in this church, whom I'm sure we all would agree are not open to the accusation of being called young men. And yet, uh, they are full of wisdom and experience and are indeed a great, great blessing to me and this church and have given me uh, great counsel over the years. I think, I wish Xerxes had men like him around. 
But of course he doesn't. And so these young men make this decision. They elaborate what their plan is in verse 3. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to, to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And so what we have here, don't we? We have the bachelor Persia edition. Right? We are going to gather beautiful young women. They're going to come to the palace you know, for a year, have the spa treatment for their one night with the bachelor. And the one that pleases him the most, well, she wins. I mean, we could put that on TV, don't you think? We could make millions uh, if we do this. In fact, it seems half the reality shows today are pretty much this premise, which just goes to show us that the dates change, but the human heart doesn't. We still are the same people. And uh, I want to be clear here, even though I'll, I'll do my best to be discreet, when they say that the woman who pleases the king, as you see there in verse 4, shall be queen, uh, they're, what they're talking about is pleasing him in the bedroom. In other words, these, these girls are not going to go on a date with him. This is not so much a beauty contest as it is a performance contest. And so they don't, they don't go out to dinner, and, he, and King Xerxes is not going to say, well, tell me about your family, or what do you like to do for fun? They, they are going to meet him in the bedroom one night, and they are going to perform their duty, and the one that he prefers will become queen. Which is somewhat interesting, because the original idea when they banished Vashti, if you remember back in chapter 1, was to find someone better than she. And, and we, we concluded what they meant by that. It was someone more, uh, more docile, more compliant to the king's perverse wishes. And yet now when it comes time to choose, they're not evaluating character at all. All they're, all they're evaluating is this woman's ability to fulfill this man's perverse cravings. In fact, we do know, again from Herodotus, the last 15 years of King Xerxes' reign, he almost gave zero attention to matters of government and state. He instead spent those 15 years uh, consumed with his vast harem. And we wonder, of course, uh, that these women who are going to be chosen for this contest, are, are they chosen? Do they, do they go willingly? Is this... Is this something that they're dragged into, or is there something they're excited about? Commentators seem to be all over the place on that question. I read one uh, commentary which said thousands, uh, thousands of women must have stood in line as they anxiously awaited the arrival of the king's attendant. Women were lying about their age probably more than any other time in human history. And why not? The prize was a crown and wealth and maids and food and leisure and clothing. The winner got it all. Another goes to the exact opposite conclusion, saying there is no choice. If you were pretty, you were entered. This is an appalling abuse of power. The empire didn't care whether parents had other plans for their daughter. The, the pretty young women are taken and incarcerated in the harem of the most powerful man in the world. So which is it? Are the, are the women lining up for this? Or are they being dragged from their homes to this? Well, we wish we knew. It doesn't tell us. If I, if I had to throw my hat in the ring and, and make a decision, I would probably imagine that few resisted this. Not, not that they were so much excited for it, but it is the inevitable use of the kingdom's power from which they can, cannot at this time resist. Certainly it offered a, a opportunities for an easy life. I do know that people are willing to work miserable jobs if it provides them with some sense of comfort or security. Once again, I don't think we're that different. So here's the, the idea. Let's go get some girls, and 
Well, to no surprise, the king likes that idea as you finish verse 4. This pleased the king, and he did so. Whatever remorse he had over losing Queen Vashti, his wife, is now gone as his lust is inflamed. He's wronged one woman. He will now do so with thousands more. And so we come now, leave Xerxes for a moment, and come to a second character, and consider Mordecai and his compromise. Mordecai and his compromise. He's introduced to us in verse 5 here, you see. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. We learned a couple things about Mordecai. Uh, one, that he's a Jewish, and so now God's covenant people are taking the, uh, the scene in this story and will do so throughout the rest of the story. We also see, interestingly, he's related to King Saul, which will be very significant in the next chapter. And then we note that he's living in exile. For we read in verse 6 that uh, he had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And so he, he, is, he is living in exile with, with the Jews, uh, and, uh, and maybe a second-generation exile, maybe a third-generation, we're not quite sure. Uh, many, many people are also confused. The question comes, what do, what do we do with Mordecai? What do we think about this guy? Is he, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he walking with the Lord? Is he not? We wish we had more details. We do know that his name is a derivative of Marduk, which was the chief Babylonian god. And so it would kind of be like a Christian naming their son Mohammed or Allah or something that. It would, it would make you scratch your head and think, I'm not sure that's the best decision. Uh, we also know that Cyrus, uh, King Xerxes' grandfather, uh, when, he took, uh, when he conquered Babylon as king of Persia, he told all the Jews, hey, you can go back home, back to Jerusalem if you like. And we also know that Isaiah told them that they should return. And yet, although many did go home, we see that Mordecai and others chose to stay. We wonder why did he stay? Why, why wouldn't he return as the prophet has announced? At least this, I think, raises some questions about Mordecai and Verses to come will raise some more questions. We'll discover in verse 10, I believe it is, that his faith is very private to him. He wants to keep it to himself, right? And so I don't think we, he's certainly not an atheist. We wouldn't, I don't think he's rejected God. But it, it, he's not living where he's supposed to. And, and we'll see that he's not doing what he's supposed to. I think if you probably would have come up and asked Mordecai, Mordecai, do you believe in God? He would say, yeah, of course I believe in God. But I don't like to talk about it much. I like to keep that to myself. Today we might call him a nominal Christian. Someone says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really follow Jesus. I don't really live for Jesus. I don't really seek to obey Jesus. And I wonder, there might be some of you out there who would kind of resonate with that. If I were to ask you, are you a Christian? You'd say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then if I were to further ask you, are you living for Jesus? You would probably say, no, not really. I'm kind of doing my own thing. Well, Mordecai will be an interesting character for you to follow through the book of Esther, perhaps. Um, that, that he's going to show us that God is faithful even when we're unfaithful to him. And I think he's going to do a great work in this man's life. Um, you do note that Mordecai does do a wonderful thing there in verse 7 when we're introduced to his cousin, Esther. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. 
So we're told three things now about Esther as she's introduced to us, and we'll obviously carry us through the rest of this book. Number one, she's an orphan. And I, I trust there are many orphans created in the Babylonian invasion. Esther would be one of them. We see that uh, she doesn't live out on the streets. By, by God's grace, we would say that her cousin, her first cousin, Mordecai, adopts her. Of course, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel as we have shared adoption as this man chooses her, chooses to protect her, chooses to love her. And I, I praise God that there's so many families in our church who have adopted. As, as a father who's adopted, I, I would encourage you, perhaps adoption might be something you would pray about for your family. You might ask God, would you open our family? Would you grow our family by bringing, bringing another in? I, I do want to remind you that we do have scholarships in our church set aside to help defray the cost for those who seek to adopt those who need a family like uh, Mordecai did with Esther. Secondly, we see that she has two names. Did you notice that? She has a Hebrew name, Hadassah, which means myrtle. It might remind you of a famous passage in Isaiah 55. Uh, Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. Instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord. It's a picture of God redeeming the earth. And it's going to fill it with myrtles, evidently. Hadassahs, if you will. But we also see she has another name, Esther, which is her Persian name. It's a derivative of Ishtar which was the Babylonian goddess of love, which is somewhat confusing, isn't it? In fact, it's confusing why, why we're even told that she has two names. I mean, who is she? Is she Hadassah or is she Esther? I think we'll see she's a little of both, at least initially, living in both worlds. Like Mordecai, I think Esther would be someone who claims God, and yet there's quite a bit of a world in her, at least at the start. The third thing we see is that she's beautiful. She's gorgeous which, of course, puts her in the story. And let's turn to her now as we consider, thirdly, Esther's compliance. Esther's compliance. Note verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. So the palace is now turned into the Playboy Mansion. Uh, hundreds of beautiful women are, are there to sleep with the king, and Esther included. Again, we're, we're left wondering the details. This is what makes Esther such a difficult book to interpret. Did she want to go? Did she fight back? Did, did Mordecai uh, uh, put up a fight? One pastor imagines, quote, Mordecai gets wind of the contest. He sees the procession in the streets. He hears the gossip of the, on the lips of the passerbys. He knows Esther is incredibly beautiful. Now he finally has his chance to cash in on his niece's good looks. He can use her beauty as a means to his own success. That seems uh, uh, kind of over the top a little bit to me. It seems harsh, a little too speculative on Mordecai. But it would be nice, wouldn't it, to see him, some, some reference to the fact that they didn't want her to go, that there was some fight in him. I mean, if the, if the pagan kingdom wanted one of my five daughters, listen, I would go down swinging. I may lose that battle, but I, I'm going to put up a fight. And I hope um, my fellow fathers out there in this congregation would do so as well. Listen, if the, 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 let's just be clear, by the way, the pagan kingdom does want your daughters. It, it wants to grab them. It wants your children. And men are supposed to protect, aren't they? Dads are supposed to act, especially when it involves our daughters. And so you and I, men, we need to do our best to make sure the wrong kind of men don't have access to our children. We need to protect them. We wonder, how, how did Esther end up in the harem? We're, we're not quite sure. But it does seem to me that she tends to be pretty compliant. 
As you see in verse 9, we read, And the young woman, that's Esther, pleased him, that's Haggai, the chief eunuch, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with uh, with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And so she sees, you see she's won the favor of Haggai. She's, she's learning how to survive. And uh, she, she, in sense, well, some sense, she's learning that Persia, um, the harem is just like Persia, that people are promoted not based upon their character, but based upon pleasing those who are in charge. And in return for being pleasing, she gets upgraded, doesn't she? She, she gets her private suite. She gets seven maids and a special food and beauty treatments. Uh, and, and in fact, one way it seems like she's trying to fit in is she's concealing her Jewish faith. For we read in verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now, we don't know why Mordecai told her not to tell people that she was a Jew. We, we have no uh, indication that the Jews were particularly being targeted at this time. Maybe it would hurt her chances in this contest. We're not quite sure. But we do know that, that Christians face a similar temptation, don't we? To hide our faith in Jesus? Right? Hide our faith in the classroom? Hide our faith in the boardroom? Hide our faith with the peers? Right? It's easier, isn't it? In this post-Christian land in which we live, this Persia in which we find ourselves in, it's sometimes easier to keep our relationship to God private. And of course, when we do so, we actually show what we're truly living for. We're living... Not for the approval of God, but for the approval of others. We should be resting in Christ's pleasure in us. The gospel should free us, shouldn't it, to be bold for Jesus because we have all we need in Jesus. And that we don't need the world's approval if we have his. It seems to me that Esther doesn't have that kind of security. I mean, she's, again, a complicated character. We We all agree, wouldn't we, that Xerxes is a bad dude, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I took a vote in my house last night. Xerxes the Jerxes, you know, all in favor, and uh, and uh, it, it was unanimous. But Esther, Esther's complicated, right? Again, I, some people think she's like Mary 1.0. Uh, she goes to the harem and she's leading Bible studies, and she goes into the king, and, and they, they they never make it to the bed because they get uh, spend the night in prayer instead. Right? I'm not quite sure. I think that might be reading a bit too much into the text. Uh, in fact, when people make that tendency and they want to lift up Esther and, and other biblical heroes, what they're trying to say is that, that Esther is good um, and therefore she's blessed. And if you're good, you'll be blessed too. But let's just be clear. If the story of the Bible is that God blesses the good people, God loves the good people, then you're in trouble. And so am I. Right? Because what we're saying ultimately is that you have to be your own savior. You have to be your own hero. And if you are, then God will love you. Then God will bless you. That only leads to two destinations. One being pride, I'm better than the rest. So my life's going well and yours isn't. Or two, despair, I'll never be good enough. I would ask you, if that's the theology in which we embrace, what's missing? A little word we like around here called grace. Right? God actually loves the unworthy. God gives grace to those who don't deserve it, gives grace to those who don't ask for it, gives grace to those who even when they receive it do not appreciate it. I look at Esther and she seems very compliant to me. Not not much resistance. She does what she's told, whether it's Mordecai or Haggai. As one put it, she becomes a Barbie doll. She does everything the men want her to do. 
I think we, if, if we consider individuals who are in similar positions, we might gain more insight into her character. You do remember that Daniel and his friends were also taken into exile and put into a royal court. And what did they do there? They promptly declared, we are Jews and we cannot eat this food. Esther is taken to the same situation. She hides her faith and eats whatever they give her. Or perhaps we might consider Joseph, again, taken into exile and put into a very powerful man's home. Offered the opportunity to sleep with a pagan who is not his spouse. He refuses, regardless of the consequences, saying, I cannot sin against my God by doing such an act. Esther, also taken into a very powerful man's home in exile, and she decides to sleep with a a pagan man who is not her husband. It seems to me that she has a bit of the world in her. She seems very compliant. You might say, well, what choice does she have? I would suggest to you she has a choice. We always have a choice. Just ask Queen Vashti if there is a choice to be made. The empire cannot compel our compliance. I wonder, have you ever complied with the empire? Have you ever gone along with the world? Of course you have, haven't you? All your decisions have not been wise. All your plans have not been God-honoring. We have, as we've already established, I think, hidden our faith at times. We put a foot in both worlds. Well, know this, if that describes you, as it describes me at times, that no matter what you've done, God will not give up on you, Christian. Just like Esther, she lacked courage. Like Mordecai, lacked commitment. And yet God is working in their lives. He's working through them. He is working in them, and his silent hand is guiding them, just as it is in your life this very moment right now. God in heaven guiding your life, regardless of what you have done. Right? You don't need, in other words, to be perfect for God to use you. You don't need to be beautiful for him to choose you. And you might say, well, I'm not walking with God today. Okay, but he's walking with you. That is, he is nearby you. And if you would simply call out to him, even now, say, God, I need you. God, I I repent of my sin. I turn to you. He would come to you in abounding grace. And so let's turn, fourthly, to God and the grace that he offers. I think we see glimpses of it here in our story. We pick it up in verse 11. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. You see, Mordecai seems somewhat anxious, doesn't he? He's um, not quite sure what's going on, and so he's trying to get whatever bits of information he can. We are loud in the palace, though he's not, as you see in verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, six since this was the regular period of beautifying, six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. Right, So these women get a 12-month spa treatment in order to prepare them for one night with the king. And you thought your wife took a long time to get ready. It was 12 months. It's incredible, isn't it? Um, going through these beautifying treatments. Of course, we continue to do this today. Women uh, and men, I think, in, in many ways, going through the, the world's beautifying treatments, becoming what the world tells us we ought to be and ought to become and doing whatever it takes to get there. I think of these poor girls out in Hollywood who, 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 will, who will do whatever that needs to do that they might have the one chance to get the glittering prizes that this world offers. 
And so there they are. They're all getting beautiful. And night after night, one after another, girl after girl goes into the king. Maybe your number is 282. Maybe you're 586. And when your number's called, you, you get to choose your outfit. You get to choose uh, your cosmetics. You get to choose your perfume. And, and then afterwards, sadly, you get a new place to live. For we read in verse 13, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. You see, when the performance was over, these girls would not return to the virgin, virgin's harem for obvious and terrible reasons. They instead would go to the concubines. And there they would remain the rest of their day, a concubine to this king. They're living in that harem, only coming out whenever the king on those rare occasions might call you by name. You, you became part of the king's living doll collection, only rarely taken out and played with. These girls would never be married. These girls would never have a family. These girls would never experience love like you and I uh, do. They, would, they live, of course, in a nice place. They get their meals. They live in, a, a, in the palace. Their life, as one put it, would be plush and pointless. Or we might even uh, use that great song, Hotel California. You, you can leave whenever you want. You could check out, rather, whenever you want. I'm sure many of these girls checked out. But you can never leave. They're enslaved to this world's king. After a year of preparation, we see it's Esther's turn for her one-night audition. She follows... Haggai's advice, you see in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had the charge of the woman, advised. Once again, just going along, whatever you say, I will do. And after being with the king, we are told that now for the uh, third time that she has won favor. In fact, finish verse 15, excuse me. He says, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Now, verse 16, and when Esther was taken to the king, King Ahasuerus, in his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. And so now you see for the third time we're told that she has won favor. In verse 9, she won favor with a eunuch Haggai. In verse uh, 15, we see she's won favor with all who saw her. In verse 16, she now has favor with the king. And, and uh, to be perfectly honest, and somewhat confused what to do with this term favor. I mean, I, I, is this a contest you want to win? Do you, do you actually want to become the queen? I'm not sure. I don't know. But I do know her people need her to be the king, queen. And so queen she becomes as you finish verse 17, and we read, So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She is now Miss Persia, if you will. And what a hollow prize that is. The crown, I'm sure, was gorgeous, and yet she is simply an object of the king's pleasure. In fact, you, you read that carefully. What do we read? She is more loved than all the others. Ladies, is that what you want to hear from your husband? Of all the women I'm sleeping with, I love you the most. And that's the kind of relationship in which she has found herself in. Of course, the king wanted someone a little more compliant than Vashti. It seems like he got her in Esther. She 
does what she is told. And so the king put the crown upon her head that Vashti refused to wear and introduces her to the kingdom, doesn't he, there in verse 18. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This king evidently likes his parties, doesn't he? And so he throws another party. This one is for Esther. It's Esther's feast. We haven't had a queen in four years. And so this is her public appearance. The media is there. All all the celebrities are there. There's a great national celebration. Everybody's uh, uh, having a party throughout the land. There's even a, a tax holiday because when the king is happy, okay, well then everybody else is happy. And yet, despite all of this is going on, all these terrible circumstances, I would suggest to you that overruling it all is the grace of God. That even in the king's harem, God is walking with Esther for the good of his people. Xerxes, of course, doesn't know she's a Jew. The Jews don't even know that they, they need her. But God, however, knows all, and he always knows exactly what he is doing. And so we have an adopted orphan in exile, snatched up by the empire, thrown into the harem, chosen by a wicked king. All the while, everybody is full of compromise and sin. And yet God is putting her exactly where she needs to be. God is ruling, pouring out grace. And now, I I don't want to minimize the sin here. I I kind of wish I had another sermon to preach on Esther chapter 2 as we see, once again, powerful men abusing vulnerable women. I don't know. Do we hear about that at all in our day? Once again, the dates change. The human heart has not. This is a vulgar and abusive contest. This is an an abusive society. We would read Esther chapter 2 in in today's language. We would call this sex trafficking. uh, and, and, And it's terrible and awful and many are suffering from it and there, I think there's great truths to actually glean from it from that angle and yet let, let's just be clear that Esther rises to the position of queen for the salvation of her people and yes for the salvation of even you and I for God has told us that he is a covenant people And through that covenant people, he will bring forth the Messiah. And that Messiah will bring blessings to all the world, to all nations, tongues, and languages, including you and I here in Hamilton, Virginia, some 2,500 years later. But if the people of God in this day are wiped out, there is no Messiah and there is no salvation for you and I. You see, even before any of this took place, God was ruling for his good. He is going to fulfill his plans, keep his promises, and no one, not even the man who claims to be the king of the world, is going to stand in his way. And neither will you or me. My sin and your sin is not going to stop God pouring out his grace upon us. Such is the power of God and the love of God as we turn to lastly this morning. And consider a fifth character, which I think is all over this passage, though not named, is he? Of course, our Lord Jesus Christ and his great love for us. I am stunned by the, the severity of the contrast between the world's love and Christ's love. And we see, I think, a great commentary in Esther chapter 2 of what this world is like and what it values and esteems and loves. You see, it values people based upon their externals. We see in Xerxes that men are valued based upon their power and their wealth. Women are valued based upon their beauty. And that's just not 2,500 years 
it continues to this day. Persia lives on. It's Pastor Tim Keller who says, a man's worth is determined by the size of his wallet, and a woman's worth is determined by the size of her dress in this world. In other words, what you are, we are told, is more important than who you are, or what you have is more important than who you are. And I'm afraid, though Christians, we hear that and we say, well, we reject that. We don't believe that. I'm afraid it's not so, not so clear. In, in some ways, I think we, too, are tempted, at the very least, if we have not already become concubines to this world system. That we receive the beauty treatments that this world tells us we need to have. Whether it's careers, or I need to get that career so I can get value. I need to get this much money so I can have value. I need, I need to drive this kind of car. I need to have this kind of house. I, I need to look this way in order to have value. Let's, let's, let's just be clear here. That's not how God values us. As we know, that, that wonderful verse, I think it's in 1 Samuel, that, that God looks on the inside where man looks upon the outside. And so may I declare in particular to the young ladies who happen to be uh, watching this sermon this morning, all of our teenage girls and our, our single girls, may I share with you this truth that your value is not based on how you look. And for all the men, the young men out there, your value is not based upon what you accomplish or how much money you make or the title on your office door or the car you drive. That is not where your value comes from. That is not where your worth comes from. We are indeed valued by God. He sees into our heart. He looks within us. And we need to learn to do so as well. It was uh, George MacDonald who is that, that, that wonderful fantasy author from the 19th century. He wrote uh, that, the book, uh, the, the Princess and Curdie, in 1883. And the story is about the princess has been taken captive, and, and the princess's fairy godmother comes to, to her friend Curdie and says, you have to go rescue the princess. But here's the problem. When you get in the castle, you won't know who to trust. Because the godmother goes on and explains that, that the people, many people who are beautiful on the outside are beasts on the inside. And many people who look beastly are actually beautiful on the inside. And so she gives Curdie this special power that whenever he touches somebody's hand, he gets a sense for what they are on the inside. Okay, this is before social distancing. We were allowed to touch hands back then. In 1883, it's a while ago. And so to, to, to test whether this power is working, the, the godmother brings over this, this ogre, and she describes it as just terrifying creature. And, and the ogre reaches out uh, her hand, and it's this terrible paw, and Curdie's very reluctant to reach out and grab it, but eventually she, he does, and, and we learn that, and, and McDonald writes, he, he clasped in that great fist the soft hand of a child, not the monster before him. And I think what McDonald is doing, our, our great Christian brother, is, is telling us that true beauty is different from what the world says. And so the question I think before us in light of that is how do we learn to see it? Where do we get that power? Well, I mentioned to you, I think Jesus is all over this passage. Of course, Christ is also a king, isn't he? And he too is seeking a bride. 
As we already heard this morning from Ephesians chapter 5, the, the people of God, the church, are, is the bride of Christ. And why does Jesus use that metaphor to describe our relationship? Because he wants to communicate the depth of intimacy that he wants to have with you. He wants to communicate to you the, the experience of love that he wants to have with you. So Christ is searching for a bride as well. And you might think, okay, if God is searching for a bride, what kind of beauty treatments must I endure in order for him to choose me? I mean, I, I got to read the Bible like four hours a day, and I, and I got to give away 90% of my income, and I got to be selfless and kind, and, and I'm going to start uh, driving the speed limit, and I, I'm going to have to speak nicely of politicians and all the rest, right? And like, what, what must I be in order for God to choose me as a spouse? But don't you see that Jesus is so unlike King Xerxes and all the rest because he does not seek the beautiful. Rather, he seeks those who know they are not. That's who Christ is looking for. Praise God, because that's who we are. If I may throw my hat in the ring, we're all, at least at one point, before we found Christ ugly. And we may have been beautiful on the outside, but not on the inside. We've all gone astray, as Scripture tells us. We've all piled up sin after sin after sin after sin for which we must pay. We're all selfless, selfish and proud. We're, we're all ungrateful and disobedient. On the inside, we are beasts. We were ugly. You see, Christianity is a love story. There is no doubt, but it is not the story of a powerful groom falling for a radiant bride. It is, we are, we're not, if I could use this language, not the princess in the tower waiting for the hero to come slay the dragon. We are the dragon. We are the villain. We are the wayward wife who repeatedly gives herself away to be ravished by the flesh in this world. And yet he loves us anyways. Esther was loved because she was beautiful. Jesus loves you when you're not. In fact, he even dies for you. That he would go to the cross and pay your sin, pay the debt that was due to you for all the sin that you've accumulated and I've accumulated. There he would endure the wrath of God on him as our substitute in our place. And then three days later, even as we have sung already this morning, he rises victoriously from the dead as the risen king. And now he offers you his hand saying to you, will you be mine? Will you be mine? And when you say yes, he makes you beautiful. He doesn't die for you because you are beautiful. He actually dies for you to make you beautiful. Therefore, he gets the credit for your radiant glory. He does so, Scripture tells us, in three ways. He declares you beautiful. We call that the doctrine of justification. He declares that you are holy and righteous. I mean, remember when, when, you, when, when you go to the weddings and the bride comes down the aisle, right? Uh, let's be honest, no matter how, how she normally looks on that day, she is radiant, right? Because she's covered with all this stuff, you know, the gown and the makeup and the hair and the flowers and the, and the perfume, right? No, no matter what you look like when, on that day, you, that's the best. I mean, you are utterly gorgeous. Well, the reality is that we too are covered, are we not? As Scripture tells us, we are covered in the righteousness of Christ, the the majesty of Christ, the splendor of Christ. And therefore, no matter what we truly look like, he looks at us and sees us as radiant. His heart 
for us is like your heart, men. When you saw your bride for that day walk down that aisle and your heart went into your throat and your knees got weak in the sight of her, that's how Christ views you and I. And, and if that's true, that ought to free us from what the world says we have to be because we have all we need in Jesus. He declares you to be beautiful. Secondly, he is transforming you into true beauty. We call this sanctification. That his love is not something we just receive. It is something that actually changes us. It transforms us. Again, as we heard in Ephesians chapter 5, that he is transforming us by his love in order to make us holy and without blemish and to present, himself, or present us to himself in splendor. We read the story, and one of the things we read about, learn about Esther is she's gorgeous. She's stunning. But I wonder at this point in Esther chapter 2, if you would have reached out and grabbed her hand, I wonder if you would have sensed something different. Proud? Maybe. Afraid? Most likely. Indifferent? Perhaps. But what we'll see as we work our way through the book of Esther is that God is beautifying her from the inside transforming her and turning her into true radiance. Xerxes sought a beautiful bride. Jesus makes us into one. And he continues to do so. He's doing this in your life right now if you're in Christ. I wonder what beautifying treatments Jesus is putting you through. Perhaps this pandemic is one of them. Is that why we're in it? Is that one of the lessons we are to learn? That he might continue to sanctify us as we learn to appreciate all the things that he has given us as they're taken away from us, appreciate our church, appreciate gathering together, appreciate our friends and family, appreciating a hug and a handshake. Uh, Is that what he's teaching us? Is he teaching us to depend upon him more greatly, to, to rely upon him more fully? Is he beautifying us? I trust he is. I trust this very moment, even now in your in the living room, wherever you may be, that God is beautifying you. He is seeking to transform you into increasing holiness and glory. Of course, lastly, he will complete that transformation one day in what the Bible calls glorification, won't he? In which we will be entirely righteous on that great day. And on that day, just as the king put a crown on Esther's head, so our king will put a crown upon ours. And on that day, just as Esther received a banquet, so you and I will receive a banquet. And on that day, just as Esther had the place of honor, so you and I, by God's grace and because of Christ's love, will have the place of honor. And on that day, there will be great rejoicing in the land. That's your king. That's the love of Christ. On that day, you will be with the one for whom you are truly made. My brother and sister in Christ, I tell you, you have been chosen by the king. Because of his great love for you. May that let your heart leap with joy. Carrying you through this week as you seek to become more like him. And maybe there are some out there that do not know this king. Do not know this love. Even this very moment I tell you by the authority of the word of God. He he reaches out his nail pierced hand. And he is saying to you right now. Will you be mine? Will you love me? Will you trust me? Will you turn from your wayward ways and place your faith in me? And if you do, this very moment, calling out to him, yielding in repentance, that he will lavish you with such grace 
that he will never exhaust for all eternity. If you will simply call out, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I give my life to a crucified Lord and a risen King. Our Father, we are so thankful for this great story that reminds us of the great love that our Lord Jesus Christ has for us. That you would choose us is beyond anything that we could really comprehend. We certainly know it has nothing to do with who we are and has everything to do with your great love. We, we are yours and shall be forevermore. And even this day, you continue to work. Work in our lives, work in this world, work in our land, guiding it silently for your good purposes. Help us to trust in you and lean upon you. And help all that's happening in our life, whether it be something happening in this world like this pandemic or something very personal in our own life, produce the sanctifying effects that you want. And help us to, us to learn to trust in you and yield our lives more faithfully to you that we too might become without blemish, and stain, and wrinkle. And Father, we pray for those who might be uh, listening to this sermon this morning and have not yet received you as their God, have yet to bow their knee to King Jesus in faith. I don't know what would keep them from Christ. I don't know how the world can offer them anything better than what Jesus offers them. And so I pray that you would help them come to themselves and that they too would bow their knee to this king who offers to love them more than anyone else ever has or ever can. Will you not do that in their life even now as we pray in Jesus' name? Amen.